Our scripture lesson this morning is from Exodus, chapter 32, verse 1 to 14. First, however, let us pray. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we, be, may we respond to you gracious promises with faithful lives. Amen. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took these from them, formed them in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who, you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have, been made, they have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Consume them and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, Change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I can't stop thinking that there is no one who can take us from the chaos of children's sermon to the seriousness of scripture quite like Scott can. <laughs> so I'm grateful. This is one of those stories that can get a preacher into trouble. 
It's an essential story, though, part of our salvation history, after all. But it includes one of those lines that can make a preacher do a little dance and squirm and say, well, yes, but no, and certainly not never, but maybe sometimes. And the tried and true, isn't that interesting? Because this is one of those stories that reveals the paradoxical nature of God. It's right there in verse 14. And the Lord changed his mind. Except we just spent all last week in reviewing with the kids how God doesn't change. How God is steadfast and sure. How the Son of God is the cornerstone upon which everything holds together. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. Thou changest not thy compassion, it fails not. As thou hast been, thou wilt forever be. We sing, immortal, invisible, God only wise. We blossom and flourish like leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. Hebrews 13 promises us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the prophet Malachi speaks the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change so that you will not be consumed. God is our anchor in the storm, the lighthouse in the night, the rock upon which our house is built, the very foundation of our lives. We have designed nine weeks of worship around this idea. But you heard Scott read it. The Lord changed his mind. When I was a kid, and what I'm going to tell you only happened every once in a very great while, you understand. When I was a kid, I would ask permission to do something or go somewhere, and when the answer came back, no, I could occasionally have the charming strategy of repeating my request. Now, not with my mother, I was no fool even back then, but with my dad, I would smile and I'd wear him down. No became no, became maybe, became fine, yes. I liked it when my dad changed his mind. Heck, I lived for the moments when my dad would change his mind. But God is a different story because a God who changes God's mind, well, could God decide that grace is good one day but overrated the next? It would not work out well for us if that were to happen. I think that type of worry is what, is what is behind humanity's general resistance to change as a whole, isn't it? Things that change might be good. They might work out in our favor, but they might not. And what will happen then? God might choose for us today, but what if God were to choose against us tomorrow? If God can change God's mind, that must technically be possible. 
what we know is always safer than what we don't, right? Sometimes, though, we actually know more than we realize. I used to teach outdoor education in the mountains of Southern California. We taught sixth graders from Los Angeles how to identify birds and how to be environmentally responsible. We taught them rock climbing and outdoor survival. As one part of our outdoor survival class, we would teach them what to do when you realize you are lost in the wilderness. And part of what you do when you're lost, or even if you just feel lost, is stop moving. Stop moving and look all around you. And not just at what's right in front of you. Look behind you and look to the sides. Look everywhere. And it will almost always help you find your way home. Now, those instructions are good for scripture, too. For those times when the word of the Lord makes us feel lost or confused. So let's look around Exodus just a bit. If you were here with us all summer, or most of the summer, you might remember that Genesis ended with Joseph and his whole family in the good graces of the Egyptian leaders. But generations passed, and Joseph died, and eventually a new king came to power too, one who didn't know Joseph. The new king knew only that there were a lot of Israelites, and he was afraid that all of those Israelites might rise up and take over, so he enslaved them. Moses is born in the midst of all this, and as Moses grows older, God comes to him in a burning bush and says, I am going to lead your people out of captivity, and you will help. Now, God and Moses have some words about all of this. Moses is not convinced he's up for the task, but he and his brother Aaron team up. And Exodus chapters 5 through 13 are about how God works through those two and some plagues sent upon Egypt to free the Israelite people. Roughly five minutes later, though, the Israelites become grumpy as all get out because being freed from the Egyptians means wandering in the wilderness. At least we had food when we were slaves, they say, and at least we had something to drink. Our resistance to change goes a long way back. God might have rolled God's eyes a bit, but God comes through yet again, sending manna to fall from the sky as food and causing water to rise up from rocks to drink. God also makes a pillar of fire and cloud to lead them every step of the way and gets them all the way to Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, I have to admit, I had long assumed it was right after the Ten Commandments were given in Scripture that Moses comes down the mountain and discovers the golden calf. That is how it works in the movie. But there are actually seven chapters between those events, seven chapters that are so easy to look past because they are filled with what might be considered mind-boggling minutiae. 
God gives Moses instructions about building a tabernacle that makes your very worst experience with Ikea look like child's play. There are instructions about dimensions and space, specifics about materials and colors, directions about furnishings, and even where each furnishing ought to be placed. There are commands about what incense should be burned and what clothes need to be fashioned and worn. And this goes on for more than 6,000 words. That is nearly four sermons. You can be appropriately horrified. But all of this matters, you see, because this is the space that is going to become God's home among the people. The tabernacle is the way that God will travel with them and be with them. And I imagine that God was concerned with making it beautiful, not because God needed it to be beautiful, but because God knew the Israelites would need that. When life is hard, how much more do we cling to anything that reminds us that goodness actually persists and that hope is real and that God really is out there? In other words, when life is ugly, how much more do we need to be reminded of God's astonishingly beautiful promise that we are not alone and we are going to make it? So God has just poured out God's own heart in detailing exactly how God will be with the people and sends Moses back down to share all of this with the Israelites. Now, I have to imagine Moses is a little breathless as he does this, not from the hike, but from the encounter he's just had. And the first thing he sees is that his people got tired of waiting around and fashioned themselves a golden cow god which turns out to be a bad decision. Moses is so mad, he smashes the tablets God gave him, tablets that were inscribed with God's handwriting on the front and the back. And then he burns that golden calf and grinds it down into powder and adds it to water and makes the people drink it. But all of that happens after Moses pleads with God to spare those very same people. That's when God changes God's mind. And Moses and God, they actually calm down together for a bit. I love this idea. Moses calms God down and then God calms Moses down. And ultimately God says, all right, let's try this again. God says to Moses, cut new tablets, and this time you write on them. It will be the same promises, but it will be in your writing, not in mine. And what happens after that, for the entirety of the rest of Exodus, is that Moses relays the instructions for the tabernacle to the people And the people follow those instructions for another six long chapters. Nearly all 6,000 words of instruction are repeated. And that's how it ends. A giant building project finally completed and God dwelling inside. 
Now, just to reiterate, there are 40 chapters in Exodus. 13 of them are building plans. Plans detailing how God will come among the people and stay with them, traveling with them wherever they go. In the middle of those plans, there is a golden calf meltdown. Now, this is important, especially when we think about a God who changes his mind. Because in this instance, yes, God changes God's mind in the people's favor, but who's to say it couldn't go the other way next time? I suppose all 6,000 words about acacia wood and crimson fabric and lampposts and table legs do. Because if I understand this whole story taken together, we are indeed to embrace the truth that Scripture tells us, that God can and will change God's mind, that God is indeed open to change, that God will shift from plan A to plan B, that God will chart a different course in response to whatever is happening in and among the people's lives. God demonstrates an astonishing willingness to be interactive with us. The first plan was a set of tablets in God's handwriting. It was all God's work handed off. But the people left alone for too long got distracted. And so the second plan was a new set of tablets with the same message but with Moses taking notes. Okay, God seems to be saying, if we are going to do this, we're really going to have to do it together. It won't be just me and you waiting on me. It will be a partnership. God changes God's mind not just about sparing people, but about how God will be willing to interact with people forevermore. But here is what does not change. God's desire and determination to be with those Israelites, however infuriating they and we may occasionally be. Before the golden calf, God was preparing to come among them and live with them, to go where they go, whenever they go. And after the golden calf incident, well, God does not change God's mind about that. God's ultimate goal was to dwell more intimately with the people. And that does not change God's deep and abiding and steadfast love, that does not change. The means and the modes by which it all plays out, that will change. That does change, and it will continue to change because we worship a living God, not a stationary statue. We worship a God who wants so desperately to be with us he will change just about any of the details and break just about any of the rules. 
in order to hold fast to the one thing that matters more than anything else, abiding love. My friend Bob was a pastor up in Chapel Hill for years, decades really. And this morning he's being named Pastor Emeritus of his old church. He will offer the benediction today, the same benediction he offered for more Sundays than anyone could count. Hold fast to the one who holds fast to you, he always says. Hold fast to the one who holds fast to you. Because God's love never lets go of us. And God's love, God's love will actually hold everything else lightly if that's what it takes to hold fast to us. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.